Take your copy of the Bible and turn to Isaiah 53. We'll start at the end of 52, actually. If you worship here regularly, you know that I often say this is the product of a divine author. God wrote this, and because he is outside of time and space, uh, he can write this in such a way that though it was crafted long ago, it can be crafted with you in mind because he's outside of time and space. Uh, This uh, is a great truth that is encouraging as we seek to apply the Scriptures to our lives, but uh, even more interesting as we approach a passage like today, which hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus explains basically the entire arc of his life really, really specifically. Uh, Hear the Word of God and marvel at the divine author and what he has to say. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, he considered that he was cut off from the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we would understand and that we would believe. Help us in our unbelief, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. When you're back in high school, they probably taught you how to write good essays or uh, excellent research papers or whatever else, and uh, you probably remember how you were instructed that a a good mark of of writing, of excellent writing, is you you tell them what you're going to say, you say it, and then you tell them what you told them, right? You've probably heard that, you remember that. Sometimes it's helpful, I guess, sometimes it's not. I mean, that's an impressive thing to do when you read where uh, the author has had the wherewithal to be able to think through their thoughts well enough to tell you what they're going to say, say it, and then tell you what they told you. Occasionally, you hear somebody public speaking off the cuff that can do that. That's really impressive. Chapters like this, though, to me are, I think, even more marvelous because there's a sense in which the end of Isaiah 52 and then into Isaiah 53 is the Lord doing that. He's telling us, well, it's not, it's not identical, though. Because for me, I, I can tell you what I'm going to say, and then I say it, and then I tell you what I told you. He, on the other hand, here in Isaiah 53, is telling us what he's going to do in and through creation. And then the rest of the Bible is, in essence, doing what he said in Isaiah 53. And then reminding us that he just did that and showing us the consequences of those actions. Another way to put that is it's prophecy, it's prophetic. And this chapter, I think probably more than any other chapter in the entire book of Isaiah, is why it's often called the fifth gospel. As here, hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus, we have his life and ministry described in such shocking specifics. It's staggering, really, actually, how wonderfully precise it is in telling us who this Jesus is that would show up just slightly more than half a millennia later. Who is the Christ, the suffering servant the Messiah of God, the Redeemer of the people of God, who is the great shepherd of the sheep. 
And verses 13 through 15 really function of, in chapter 52. It function as an introduction to tell us who this Savior is in the, the broadest of brushes, as painting with the broadest of brushes, that just give us a general idea, the overview. Who is this Messiah? What is his ministry going to be like? Well, he's my servant. Again, here, this idea of the servant is picked up in the latter parts of Isaiah, and it starts as a descriptor of Isaiah himself, and then the more the servant is described and explained, the more it becomes increasingly obvious that it's not Isaiah. This servant is bigger than what any one prophet could be. Greater and grander, more glorious and strong. This is the story of God's servant. The overview, verse 13, look, my servant's going to act wisely. He's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted. He's, he's going to be great. This would be no surprise. It's what we'd expect from our God. If he's sending his special servant, the one who carries his name, who is anointed with his presence, of course he would be great. Verse 14 is where the kind of record scratch would happen if it had a soundtrack, right? What? 13, he's the great, the grand, the glorious, the beautiful. Verse 14, but wait a minute. You were shocked. You missed the point. He's not going to look the way that you expect him to look. He's not going to maintain the appearance that you expect him to maintain. You're expecting a king who's clothed in, in greatness and grandeur, grandeur who's, who's clothed in brilliance and power. Well, this king's going to be a little different. But that's not going to stop him. Verse 15. There's your overarching arc of the arrival of Jesus. The king's going to show up. He's not going to look the way you want him to look, but he's still going to be victorious. Still going to be victorious. Now, 53 as a chapter is really a commentary and an explanation of a, a fuller portrait of what's covered in those three verses. It divides into four pieces, and we're going to examine those four pieces and see what we can draw out for our understanding. First one, verses 1 through 3, begin to describe the ministry of this Messiah, the ministry of the Lord Christ, the anointed of God. Who has believed what he's heard from us? Who is receiving this king? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is what this Messiah is like. He grew up before him like a young plant. So the Messiah, the suffering servant, grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now this is interesting as it's kind of giving explanation of this is uh, like a plant that's planted by God and growing in a place that you would never expect. It's not growing in the most fertile soil. It's not growing in the place that has been well tilled, that's been well manured, where there's lots of good things uh, for it to grow. Instead, this is a plant that's grown up in a shocking place that you would never expect. And yet, it's grown before the face of God. I love that you get to see, even in that description, it's fulfilled in the arrival of Christ, isn't it? 
When Jesus shows up, does he show up in the place that you would expect the king of all creation to show up? I mean, if we're going to be honest, we would expect him to show up in Rome at that point. Or perhaps if we're a bit more open to other parts of world history, maybe Beijing or Mongolia or other some parts of the world, we would expect him to show up somewhere, but not where he did. Even if he was going to show up in the Israel region, we would expect Jerusalem. Nope. Shows up in a tiny little village. Shows up in a place where uh, the family is so full that he's been moved outside to the barn. It's the only place that's quiet enough to uh, deliver a baby. Again, maybe not quite the illustration that we intend it to be here, where it's to say he's kind of so poor that he had to be delivered where the animals were. It's probably more likely that Mary's two choices of locations to deliver the baby were either they would move the dining room table for Thanksgiving or she'd go out in the barn. Those are probably her two choices because the family's so crowded, and I don't know very many women that are like, dining room table, let's go, right? She wants a little bit of privacy, so they move her outside. A place you would never expect. A king you would never expect. He, he's not what you were thinking. In fact, actually, it goes on to describe his no former majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him. And, and meaning, even as he's born, it's, it's not like he's so comprehensively impressive that you're like, ah, oh, that's the guy I got to follow. This is a thought that periodically bounces around in my head and shows you kind of how grim a place my head is. To think about how many humans I meet on a regular basis that are more attractive to look at than the Lord Jesus. You really think about that? Like, he's probably by best description here, maybe we wouldn't go so far as to say he was ugly, but we would probably certainly go so far as to say he was not a handsome man. That's wild to think about, isn't it? Like most of us have fixed in our brain as an idea of what Jesus looks like, that absolutely wretched abomination of a painting that was painted in the 50s. It's absolutely an abomination and that's horrible. But most of us, that's what we have fixed in our head, right? Extremely handsome white dude who uses like a $500 bottle of shampoo and a $500 bottle of conditioner who's got the most spectacular grooming kit for his beard, and that's what he's doing. He's clean, and he's nice, and my goodness, that's the guy that like, I could easily follow after. Realistically, what, what actually did Jesus look like? See, he's a working man, carpenter, who hung out with fishermen, so he probably didn't smell real good, remember? No deodorant back in those days. Uh, grew up poor, so it's not like he has lots of changes of clothing, so what he is wearing is probably quite ratty. He probably hasn't changed it enough. And oh yeah, he was homeless most of his ministry. I don't know many people that don't have homes that are constantly well-bathed and constantly well-groomed. Now he stayed with friends and stayed with strangers constantly. But you know they spent nights out on the road sleeping rough on the side in the dirt. This is not the kind of guy, again, we have our, our mental idolatry is so wrong <laughs> because we've defined him in his humanity as glorious. That's wrong, dreadfully wrong. The scriptures tell us that in his humanity, what, was he, what, what did he look like? He looked like the kind of guy that made us probably a bit uncomfortable here in Fort Mill that we just kind of ignored, right? 
The guy that you just don't make eye contact with when you're driving? Like when you're at the stoplight and he's standing right there, you're like, I'm just not going to look at him. I'm just, if, if I don't look at him, he's not there. That's probably a much better illustration than what we'd like to admit. In fact, actually, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. He's not the kind of guy that you just immediately want to follow. This is one of the things that I think Hollywood has taught us very well. What a superficial beauty or charm looks like that makes it easy to follow. Right? I mean, we all have that actor or actress in our head that if they showed up and were like, hey, let's go do this thing, let's go out to dinner, everybody would be like, okay, fine, sure. Like, I'll go out anywhere you want. You tell me to go. I'll go. Sure, come on. No, this is a man actually who's rejected, who, who has no, no form and majesty and beauty in his own kind of appearance. Standing. And as if that weren't bad enough, look at the second part of that that verse 3. He was as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. I just, again, he's not the Messiah they were expecting. In fact, actually, I mean, we get to see this in the Scriptures, don't we? That when he shows up, none of the Jews kind of really go after him. They don't follow him everywhere. It's not that he kind of constantly generates obedience and followers. The guys he does collect, they're by and large, when he collects them, we might call a bit of a loser. Uh, they don't seem to be very smart. They're certainly not well-educated. And it's not until Pentecost that they turn into the more unbelievable heroes of the faith that we see. And he's collecting from what we would consider the dregs of society. He gets invited to parties everywhere he goes, but the people that invite him to the parties are the people that polite company can't hang out with, right? The people that Jesus hung out with are the kind of people that my children are specifically forbidden from hanging out with. So much so that even, it's interesting, after the resurrection, the disciples are still like, hey, when are you going to bring your kingdom and kill all the Romans? When are you going to be in your glory? When are you, when are you going to do it here? When, when does Israel become the great kingdom here? When does this political thing become the world's superpower? They just don't get it. And I think for us as kind of 21st century Christians, whatever century we're in, there is actually, I think, a bit of a, a gentle rebuke in here. We live in a culture that has elevated the superficial to such a high, high standard. It's shocking. I mean, to think about all of the surgeries now that we can do to move parts into different places and to make people look more you know, appealing and to try to cheat aging... I think it's so intriguing, the scriptures are so clear, that gray hair is a, a crown for the aged. I cling to that one. 
And yet, you think about it, it's one of the first things that we do as a culture to begin to cheat age, to give away our glory, to give away our dignity. I'm going to be candid. Living in the community that we live in, with the kind of income that we have as a community, if we're going to be genuinely truthful, if the Lord Jesus in his ministry had stumbled into this church, he probably would have been the kind of person that would have made us a little uncomfortable. And not simply because of what he teaches is going to convict us of sin. That would have happened next. But honestly, first, because he's probably not going to look like us, not smell like us. He would have been one of the lowly, the not good-lookings, the not wonderfuls. And honestly, friends, there's an element there where I think we probably need to have a little bit of self-examination. It's so easy for us to kind of throw stones at others and say, well, those people are superficial. They only evaluate by the outsides. They only look at what people look like. They're so superficial. But if we're going to be candid, so am I. And so are you. How easy it is for us to evaluate with our eyes instead of evaluating by the merits of the scriptures. To evaluate even by our experiences instead of evaluating by the scriptures. To let other things begin to dominate the hierarchy of what is good and right and proper and true instead of the scriptures. I mean, there's so many illustrations we could give. But even on a simple one, when we teach our children as to what to look for in a spouse, are we teaching them to look for somebody that's handsome or funny, who'll be kind or generous? Who, or are we teaching them somebody who loves the Bible and that love dominates their life? Everything after that is secondary. In fact, actually, when you begin to evaluate who your friends are and what you value, be honest. How far down do we move the scriptures? Well, one through three, lay out that he's a different kind of savior than what we'd expect. Verses four through six begin to explain what that savior is going to do. This is, in essence... The master strategist, in verses 4 through 6, telling us what his strategy is. I've told this story before, but it, it's so good. I do like to tell it periodically. I, uh, when I was in high school, my youth pastor was a, a former Clemson um, star, uh, like all-national soccer player. He played for the national team, played professional soccer after. He, very, very good. Uh, and I played soccer, but wasn't very good at all. In fact, I was really quite bad. And uh, I remember playing with him at one point, and we were you know, playing a game or whatever on opposite teams, and I kind of got a little bit too big for my britches. And he said, Michael, here's what's going to happen. is I'm going to go get the ball down at my goal, and I'm going to dribble it down, and I'm going to put it through your legs. And then I'm going to wait. I'm going to put it through your legs again. 
and then I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna put it through your legs again, and then I'm gonna take it down and I'm gonna score. I was like, all right, let's, I'm, I'm all on that. Like, I'll play that. I, that. That is my game. I'm all on that. So I played defense with my legs like that. And then open. And that ball went through my legs three times before it went down in the net. With my legs put together like that. Never open. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. It was a shocking, actually, moment because he gave me the exact strategy he was going to use. I'm going to get the ball. I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it between your legs three times, and I'm going to put it in the goal. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do to stop me. And he was 100% right. Verses four through six is the Lord saying, look, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do. This is the strategy I'm getting ready to use. It's not going to be with the Messiah showing up and crushing his enemies. It's not going to be the Messiah showing up with these great vast armies and invading the planet and wiping it into oblivion. It's not going to be him going down, putting the soccer ball between his legs three times. It's going to be him suffering. You'll never see it coming. The Messiah is going to step inside time and space. He's going to be very God himself. And instead of arriving in glory the way that he could or should even, he's going to be lowly and then he's going to suffer. Verse 4, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. By this it means that he's fully human, truly, fully human. He got sick. He had joint pain when he went through puberty. He experienced the death of friends and family around him. He knew what it meant to hurt the way that humans hurt. And how do we know that the second person of the Trinity understands what it means to be human? He is human. He put on humanity in in its entirety and in its fullness, and it wasn't partial. It wasn't the best of humanity. It's fully human. And he wasn't born with omniscience in his humanity. He was born with poor understanding. He had to learn. Scriptures tell us that. He had to sleep. He had to eat. He had to do all of the things that humans have to do. He he understands what our griefs, he even carried our sorrows. There is a sense in which there is no grief or sorrow that you can carry that the Lord Jesus himself has not already carried in some fashion. That is an amazing thing. That he's the most human of all humans so that any grief or sorrow that we have, he's experienced in some fashion. Now, again, not in a one-to-one sense of like he doesn't know what it's like to have his foot run over by a car because cars didn't exist. But he understands the fullness of humanity. So your sadness, your grief, your, your weariness, your brokenness, your body hurting, your soul hurting, your heart hurting, he knows all of those infinitely greater than you do. Yet, verse 4, rather than rejoicing at that sweet camaraderie, rather than rejoicing that the God of creation has, has stepped inside creation and understands, rather than rejoicing that his Messiah, this servant, would know everything that I'm going through, instead what happened? Well, humanity rejected him. We esteemed him stricken, Smitten by God and afflicted, he was rejected. 
In fact, his suffering is going to be so intense and extreme that he's going to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. I think those are probably just poetic euphemisms for he'll carry the weight of sin in such a way that it would destroy him. Remember, it's real, his destruction. In fact, actually, verse 5 All of the punishment that is deserved for sin, he carried. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Literally, the only innocent man in human history. Literally. I mean, very rarely ever do I ever have to contend with somebody now who says they've never done anything bad. Now it's usually just like, I do bad things, I just don't care about it. This is the one guy who never did any bad things ever. And yet he bore all of the punishment, all of the weight. And it's, it's, it's really staggering if you stop and think about it, that in verses 4, 5, and 6, when the Lord lays out, the Father explains what Jesus' tactic, what the second person of the tact, uh, Trinity, what his tactic is going to be inside creation, it would be that he would be stricken, he would be smitten, he would be afflicted, he would be pierced, he would be crushed, he would be the chastisement, he would uh, have wounds, um, he would be the iniquity of us all. It's all horrible vocabulary. Most of us have really kind of fallen prey to our uh, simplified American English, really, which is just to add really or very in front of words to make it kind of increase the intensity. So it's really, 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 really bad. Most of us have stopped using things like abhorrent and changing our vocabulary to hit the emotional punch. Now, this hasn't, and that's what it's doing, is it's getting at in ways that's trying to kind of grab our ears and kind of jam them into the text to say, look, his entire ministry would be one of lowliness. This is shocking. Literally the most important man that has ever lived. And his strategy inside creation would be to suffer. And 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 yet, I complain when I get inconvenienced for 30 seconds. I get grumpy when it's out of my comfort zone for 10 minutes. I get angry when the pastor tells me to do something that doesn't make me happy. Get aggravated with my family members when they don't make me feel special. Everybody's supposed to make me feel so special. How come you don't affirm me? How come you don't build me up? How come you don't make me feel fulfilled? Obviously, you can tell the sarcasm, I hope. Shocking, isn't it? How the Lord lays out what is his plan for his special servant is to come in and to suffer terribly. And then yet, I, if following in his footsteps, have said, I'm better than the Lord Jesus. I can't follow that path. I have to do something better and different. Spend all my money to make sure I'm not ugly. As best as that can be. I'm going to spend all my energy to make sure I'm not miserable. 
(laughs) Again, as best as that can be. And yet I can't outrun the curse, can I? Time and age and the curse catches us all. Again, friends, I would humbly, 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 do you find yourself thinking that task is just below me? I'm just too good for that. Now, I'll be candid. Most of us as adults, we don't tend to think that way in the South because it's so uncouth and tacky. But that's actually the words that we use in our own head, isn't it? To live like that is just so uncouth and tacky. And it's intriguing to think about what a church would be like if all of our members viewed our task as to follow the path of the Lord Jesus. And rather than accumulating glory in this place, our task was to accumulate glory in the life to come. How different would it be? How differently would we live? Four through six lay out that task of suffering. Seven through nine actually explain the death and burial. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is an amazing statement, actually. That the one person in human history who is actually equipped to defend himself didn't. And some of us would say, well, it was unjust. And he was like, that's actually the exact point. But he could have. Yeah, but he didn't. It's amazing to me how quickly, how quickly we jump in in defending ourselves and blaming others. And some of us, it just just rankles inside. The idea that it would be so unjust, it's unfair. It's unfair that I would get blamed for that. Well, Maybe, actually. It was good enough for the Lord Jesus. It maybe needs to be good enough for you, too. How different might our lives look if we weren't quite so aggressively defensive? Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. He just went quietly. Unjustly, unfairly, he went quietly, and it cost him his life. Well, he gave it up. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? He was actually, he lost his life for the sins of the people of God. Now, that losing his life was by his own choice. He gave it up freely. Remember, this is his mission that was laid out in verses 4 through 6 and in the previous chapter even. It's his mission to go accomplish the salvation of his people. But he chose to die, but it still took death to do it. 
And so he died. Verse 9, even they make grave with the wicked. He was right, executed with criminals on either side and with a rich man in his death. That's the tomb. Though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he never sinned. He didn't deserve death. And yet, again, how many of us would just have a stroke at how unfair it is. We, ha- we have to defend ourselves so much. Instead, he chooses to die, the one who didn't need to die, who never would have died. That's wild to think about, isn't it? He wouldn't have died. Why? Well, he accomplishes something. It's, it wasn't just squandered uh, suffering. It wasn't just a you know, masochism or something where he's like, I'm just going to come and make myself miserable. I'm going to be as, as miserable as I possibly can. Instead, no, his grief was, it was directed. It was intentional and it accomplishes something. Verses 10 through 12 lay out what the, the, the purpose of his suffering was. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, this suffering servant, put him to grief, so that implied, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So when he pays the price, his people would reap the benefit. This is the heart of the gospel. It's articulated in slightly different ways into the New Testament, but it's this, that all of the bad that we have done deserves eternal punishment. And most of us, again, don't contest that point. We know that we've made mistakes. We know that we've done evil things. We know the own voices in our head when we think and talk. The gospel is that Jesus takes that punishment so that you may be forgiven freely to you. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't purchase it. No amount of money, no amount of good works, no amount of anything. It's done by Christ and Christ alone and given freely to you. Cost him a great deal, but freely to you. And that's verse 10. When his soul makes that offering for guilt, his offspring will prolong their days. Out of the anguish of his soul, again, his suffering, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge that God will be satisfied, that the wrath of God will be fully satisfied by the suffering of this servant. You skip down slightly further. He will bear their iniquities. And because he accomplishes that, therefore, the Lord will bless him. Divide him a portion with the many, the strong. Uh, He shall divide his spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's shocking. Half a millennia before the arrival of Jesus, how clearly it would explain who he is. Why... Why does this matter for us today? What do we do with it? Well, very quickly. We're getting ready to go to the supper. The Lord's Supper, a table of 
symbolism and significance as we will fellowship with God. And it's a table that is really, we want everybody in the world to be able to come to. But it's really only for those that know Jesus. And this is the reason why. Is because if you know Christ, not just intellectually know of him, but have that uh, abiding relationship with him, if you are in Christ, the, the math behind it, the, the legal consequences are significant. Sin is forgiven, and grace is given. And I love that, actually, because one of the things that makes this chapter so shocking, it's so obvious that we don't even catch it anymore, is the tense in which it's written. Did you, did you even notice 600 years or so before Jesus, it's written in the past tense because Christ's victory is so sure, is so secure, is so real that even God addresses it like it's already done because it cannot be broken. At this table, what we go to do is actually enjoy some of the benefits of that salvation to be nourished in Christ, to be strengthened, uh, to be built up in his grace, to be equipped in his power, to be further emptied of ourselves and our sin, and to be stirred up in Jesus. And honestly, friends, some of us, if we're going to be honest, have to or need to at least admit that Perhaps we've forgotten a little bit of how marvelous that salvation is. And quietly, now we would never say it this way, but quietly in the back of our head, we've subtly started thinking that in some way, we kind of did God a favor by becoming a Christian. Right? I mean, his church runs better when we're here, right? I mean, it certainly looks better when I'm here. The the family runs better when I'm here. That I'm doing him a favor. And what actually happens behind that is really quietly this very subtle work of pride in our hearts to say that I deserve better than what I'm getting. And perhaps we need to contemplate how bad that pride has kind of dug its roots into our hearts. The roots of pride, those weeds have kind of pervaded into our souls. And in doing so, our view of Jesus has gotten so small because our view of me has gotten so big. You know what? Today's a great day to change that. Beginning with confession, even now. Repentance, even now. Repentance as you come to the table and even repentance this afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess. We have a very inflated view of ourselves. Rather than marveling at the truth of Jesus, this chapter that we've read so many times, we are so prone to marveling at our own opinions, being preoccupied with our own thoughts, 
being captivated with how right we are or how poorly we've been treated. And Lord, to know that every poor treatment we receive, (laughs) we're just following the path that Jesus himself has led. We do thank you that all of those griefs will be redressed in the life to come, and that in that life there will be no tears, no suffering, no sorrow, and most of all, no sin. Would you please ready us for the time in which we are called home. For Christ's sake, amen.